Amen. You may be seated. And our Old Testament reading this morning is found from in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6. And then our New Testament reading and our text for this morning is found in Philippians, chapter 1. Uh, we'll be reading verses 37, um, uh, 27 through 30 uh, in Philippians, chapter 1. But first of all, the Old Testament reading from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. That you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. And then our New Testament reading from Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the reading and the hearing of your word That in itself is a means of grace. Spirit works to illumine your word to our hearts as we read it, as we meditate upon it, as we hear it, as it's read. And now, Lord, we come to the preaching of your word, and your servant stands before you in need of your strength, the strength of your Holy Spirit, the unction and the anointing of your Holy Spirit in order to preach your gospel as found in this text with clarity and with power. Lord, we pray that you would grant this unction that your people might be edified and your name be glorified in the midst of the assembly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The text that we have for this morning is really a transitional text. One of the patterns that we typically see in Paul's epistles, not as much in this one as you do for Ephesians or in Colossians in particular, but but still it's there to a degree in this. Paul begins with what we call the indicative before moving to the imperative. Now, some of you might say, it's been a long time since I had English grammar, and I'm not even sure I remember what an indicative and what an imperative is. 
And some of you are saying, oh, that's old hat. I know all about these things. We're in different places in our remembrance of, of these things. But what we mean by indicative is those things that are declared to be true. So Paul oftentimes will begin by declaring what is true, what is true of you, of who you are in Christ Jesus. Oftentimes there's a doctrinal emphasis to the what we call the indicative. But then somewhere in his epistle he will shift his emphasis, not entirely, but still shift the emphasis from the indicative of who you are in Christ Jesus to how then shall we live. And it comes to us by way of exhortations. What we've had in Philippians is not so much the indicative in terms of these doctrinal pronouncements as we see in Ephesians and Colossians, but something that's more personal and more autobiographical. And Paul has just referred to his circumstances where he's in prison, of course, we know that he's there, he's chained to a palace guard, he's under house arrest, and he's awaiting a hearing before Nero. And as Paul says, there's going to be one of two outcomes. Either that day Nero's going to go thumbs up, or that day Nero's going to go thumbs down. If Nero goes thumbs up, then Paul is going to be released because these are groundless charges that have been brought against him in the first place, and that will be more fruitful labor in his ministry of the gospel. If Nero goes thumbs down, then it means he's going to be executed and beheaded, which he said is better by far. Why? Because I get to be with Jesus. I get to be with Jesus if that happens. So, so Paul's been wrestling with these things and talking about these things, his own circumstance and his own situation. Now, certainly there are doctrinal things that we see as he's giving even, even this, this autobiographical description. But, but now, as we turn to, to this part of the text, he moves to the imperative. He gives us an exhortation. Uh, I want to just to spend just a few minutes here reflecting on something about the indicative of the imperative. Uh, as regional home missionary, one of my privileges is I get to visit a lot of places. I get to visit our mission works, especially those that don't yet have a pastor, like here, on a more frequent basis, those that do have pastors on a less frequent basis, but then on occasion in our congregations as well. And many of those are churches that were one-time mission works, just like you are. And I spent a lot of time there. And now they're their own congregations. They have their own elders. They have their pastors. And they're looking for pulpit supplier. They want me to come and do a presentation on home missions. I get a phone call. If I can make arrangements to do it, I love to do it. But one of the things I don't love about these things is people sometimes whisper in my ear. They whisper in my ear. I'm not saying it's something that I would unwelcome because people have burdens, and I'm here to hear their burdens. Sometimes those whispers are criticisms. And sometimes those whispers are criticisms of the preacher's preaching. I get that quite often when I go from place to place. Not all the time, but on occasion. The criticisms usually fall in one of two categories. One is, our pastor doesn't do enough application in his preaching. He's good about preaching the gospel, all this. We're seeing wonderful insight in this, but, 
But he doesn't tell me how then shall I live, at least not to my satisfaction. Uh, that's typically the criticism. On occasion, the criticism's on the other side. Uh, and, and that is our pastor, it's just law, 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 law. It's duty, 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 duty. I feel beaten down every single Sunday when I come to church. I'm not hearing any gospel. Usually the truth of the preacher's preaching when I listen to it is, is that both of those tend to be exaggerations and the pastor is doing a better job than, than, than those that are, are criticizing him. But they usually fall in one of those two categories. Not enough application or I don't want any application. I wish he would stop. It's these categories. As if the indicative and the imperative are at odds with each other. They are not. They are not. If we follow Paul's pattern, even in his epistles, we see the proclamation of gospel truth, and we see the specific application of that to the lives of believers. We see that in his epistles. It's both and. It's not either or. And, and sometimes when, when you hear these kinds of things, you know, I wonder, how am I supposed to respond? And sometimes there's not much I can say. I just sort of listen to these things. But in, in sessions, oftentimes, we'll have discussions about these kinds of criticisms that have come and, and do analysis to see, is there something that needs to be done? Is, does the pastor need to shore up more? Does he need to give more gospel content? You know, is he too heavy on application without the gospel? Or the other way around? Sometimes we do that. Sometimes we have these conversations. Sometimes I have conversations with ministers about these things. But it's both and. In fact, the only way that we are able to delight in the law of God and to do it is because of the gospel. We need the gospel. We need the gospel. The gospel is about our union with Christ Jesus, what's born out of our union with Christ Jesus and being full of the Spirit of God is a delight in obeying him as we see it in the exhortations. And so I just wanted to say a little something there about sometimes criticisms that we and, and to make the declaration, if we're going to follow the pattern we have in the Apostle Paul in the epistles, it is both and. And here he moves from the indicatives that are grounded in his own story, his own autobiography, uh, to an exhortation. Now listen to the exhortation. Verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let let your manner of life, let your walk, let the way you are living be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's an exhortation. That's a call upon you in terms of how you must live your life. And it comes from the New Testament. It's not Old Testament law. Live according to who you are in Christ Jesus. Live in a way that is worthy 
of your Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear of you. Whether I come or whether I don't come, whether the preacher comes or not, this is how you need to live. I've had it happen before where it, when I was a, a pastor or even serving on provisional sessions and, and call up a family in order to set up a you know, pastoral visit. Oh, the preacher wants to come. What have we done wrong? <laughs> you, you've heard that. Anybody ever experienced that before? You know, what have I done wrong? Well, and of course, the answer is nothing. That's not what this is about. It's, it's not about confrontation oftentimes in, in, in those situations. But what Paul is saying is whether I'm there or not, don't be on your best behavior because I'm there. No, walk in a manner that's worthy of Christ because you're always in the presence of Christ himself. Whether I'm there or whether I'm not. There are really three headings that emerge in this text. The one is that you live your life in a manner that's worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, or that you walk, if we use another metaphor that Paul often uses for our lives, the first point, that you walk, the second point is how do you walk, and then the third point is where does it lead you? What do you encounter along the way? That's how this text falls out. First of all, just as I've pointed out, that you walk, so that that you walk only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is, walk this way. That you walk is the first thing. But secondly, how do you walk? Let's continue to read. Uh, let, me, let me go back and read that and in, in, to show it in context. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may, have, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. Now listen in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. How are you to walk? The fact that we are to walk in a manner that's worthy of Christ, how are we to do this? Well, the text says we're to do it together. We're to do it together. You don't live the Christian life by yourself. The church of Jesus Christ is important. One of the concerns that I have with evangelicalism in as a whole is that there's a very weak ecclesiology or doctrine of the church. We're not Lone Ranger Christians. We're to live this life. We're to walk this walk to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. But we do it together. Why? Because we need each other. We need each other. Look at how he expresses it again. Being firm in one spirit, you see. There you have that. In one spirit, with one mind. That is, coming to the same mind. Coming to the same mind about things that are important. In agreement with one another. Working towards that, you see. Of one mind. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We do it together. This is why we want to call out to people that are coming to faith in Christ Jesus, come into the life of the church. I need you and you need me. 
the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're accountable for and to each other. You cannot live the Christian life in isolation. Now, I'm not saying that what happens if you're on a secluded island somewhere in a shipwreck and you're the only one that's there and so you're a church of one. Of course, your fellowship is with a triune God there. But, but that's atypical. That's not what we see taking place in the world. No, God is calling us out of the kingdom of darkness and he's calling us into the kingdom of life and he's gathering together, gathering us together in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is of great significance. And you're living your life in a way that brings honor to Christ because of the gospel that's at work in you. God uses means. He uses the means of grace. He uses the preaching of the word of God. He uses the prayers of the saints. He uses the assembly for worship. He uses instruction and teaching. He uses discipline and shepherding. He uses all kinds of means. But he also uses each other. It's one thing I love about this congregation. And it's evident in the group me. I noticed that uh, a need went out. You know, somebody gets their cars broken into <laughs> and things are stolen. Uh, and, and a need comes out. And then two other families are fighting over who gets to meet the need. It's, and, 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 and I don't know if y'all noticed, Dan said, put in there, I love my church. <laughs> Did you see that little thing that, that Dan put there? Because what he saw was the church in action. Here's a need that comes to one of our families, and then the families are fighting over who gets to meet the need. And you guys won the fight. So Toby took Pete down. If I, if I remember, I think that, 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 that that's how that went. The, the interdependence, the mutual accountability to help each other in walking in this way. When we see our brother struggling, coming along beside him and putting our arm around him, or our sister, or receiving that warm encouragement from our brothers and sisters, all of this takes place as the church of Jesus Christ lives as a body. And that's what God's building here. You are becoming a church. And you can see it in terms of this interdependence and mutual accountability and caring for one another. And, and, and when you're becoming a church, guess what? You're ready for a pastor, you see, to come and lead you in terms of reaching out to others. We walk the Christian life, but we don't walk it by ourselves or even simply in the isolation of our own families. But in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, side by side, with one mind, with one spirit. And we need to work to preserve that unity. Of course, the devil, what does he want to do? He wants to come in and he wants to, to pit this one against that one. That's okay if you're fighting over doing good, like what happened this week. But that was, of course, in jest. But he wants to pit this one against that one. It's like we were talking about in Sunday school. Rather than dying to our own vision and preferences and yielding to each other in these things, we want to be insistent upon our own. And what does it do? It divides us. And it divides the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> God designed the church, yes, to demonstrate what the body of Christ looks like, but for our 
for our benefit. And God's at work among you. He is building this communion that's there. There are times we may get frustrated. You know, why aren't we growing faster? There are times we may get frustrated because, you know, visitors show up and then we don't see them again. And these sorts of things that can be, that can be discouraging to us. But be encouraged by the things that you see that God is working among you. God is at work here, and God will grow his church. I'm convinced of that. And so I want to commend you, this congregation, the things that I see over and over again, the body life that is, that, 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 that is evident, the willingness to work and labor. Uh, even when you sleep late and you get here late and you have to do it after Sunday school real quick, you know, these kind of, the eagerness to do to do, to, you know, to, to, to work and to labor that, that, that we see in this work. It, it's, it's one thing that excites me about what God is doing here at Peninsula. Now, I could pick on you, too, because I, you're not perfect, believe it or not. We're all sinners. Yes, even you. It's hard to, it's hard to think that, but it's true. Side by side with the faith of the gospel. Okay, that we walk. How do we walk? We walk together. Where does, where does it lead us? The answer is to suffering. Well, that's not what we want to hear. But that is bedrock truth of biblical revelation. Look at what he says. And not frightened in anything, verse 28, by your opponents. You mean we have opponents? You mean people in the church have opponents? The answer is yes. The Bible teaches us early. Genesis 3, immediately after the fall, that there's going to be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The church of Jesus Christ is going to be opposed. It has always been opposed by the world throughout history. You are going to have opponents as you seek to walk in a way that's worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is going to be opposition. He goes on to say more about it. And not frightened, at verse 28, in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their, of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. It's a clear sign to them that God's blessing is upon you and his destruction is upon them. It doesn't mean they see it. A sign can be clear and people can be blind to it. Understand? It's a manifestation of God's mercy upon you that he's working godliness out in you. And those who are walking in wickedness, it's a sign that they are under destruction. It's a clear sign. It's evident. But they are so blinded, they suppress it in unrighteousness, and they don't see it. What Paul is saying here is there is going to be opposition to the gospel in this world. And if you stand with Christ Jesus, there's going to be opposition. This is a clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you. Now, here's a gift that comes to you from God. This is God's gift to you. Okay, we're, we're hearing this. We're thinking, oh, I want to learn about this gift. God's given me a gift. 
Oh boy, I want to, I want to see what it is. It may surprise you. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. That's a gift. Yes, that's good news. It's a gift of God that I believe in him. But also suffer for his sake. This is God's gift to you. One is he's given you faith to believe in him. Second, he's given you the blessing of suffering for his name's sake. And I say, but how is that a gift? We talked about it this, this morning and what Pete prayed so passionately. That prayer was a blessing to my soul this morning. I hope it was to yours as well. It was a blessing to my soul how we must die. We followed Jesus. Jesus' path led to the cross. We followed Jesus the path leads to daily dying and maybe even dying a martyr's death. Why? Because the enmity is so rife. The, the enmity is so hostile because it's the God of this world that's blinded the minds of unbelievers and stirred their hostility against God and against those who follow him and who walk according to his way. It's intense. Pete prayed for the persecuted church this morning. He prayed and he prayed concerning us who live really in relative peace by comparison to brothers and sisters in Christ. We're standing up for the name of Jesus can mean death, an immediate death. How many of you have met Zachy? Y'all know who I'm talking about? Zacharias, well, the Asus. He is our minister at our church in Atlanta. I think some of you have heard Zeki preach. Maybe it, I'm sure that he's preached at Reformation before. <clears throat> Zeki's a dear, dear brother. Yes, in Atlanta, Georgia, in a church that when he went there was probably 95% Caucasian. We have an African refugee as the minister in that congregation. Zeki was a leader in the not just the Presbyterian church, but in the evangelical church, the broader evangelical church in Eritrea. When the revolution took place and a, a new government came in, and the church, quite frankly, this is many, many years ago, the church was in support of the revolution because of the tyranny of the government that existed the new government came in, it was a communist government that was instituted. And, and yes, with support or moral support from many in the church, Zeki, along with other leaders, were called in and said, your churches are closed. You cannot meet. And they met anyway. They went eight years where they rarely sang a hymn, meeting in houses, 
hiding to meet in houses lest the whole church be arrested because if they sang people walking by may hear them singing and say there's a worship service taking place and turn them into authorities Zeki came over here to study he'd go back and forth between Greenville Seminary and Eritrea and um WikiLeaks occurred. Remember when WikiLeaks first happened and all of this information was dumped? One of the things that was leaked was an informal, off-the-record conversation between a U.S. diplomat and the embassy in Zeki. It was not supposed to be a record of it. It was leaked. His name was out there. A bounty was put on his head. This is after on a number of occasions, I don't know how many times, he was arrested, tortured, and beaten in the jail because of his Christian faith. Now he's on the run. He didn't want to run. He wanted to stay. His wife said to him, you're better off for us if you're alive. Because of his relationship with Greenville Seminary and the open door, he had a window to get in. He had to flee for his life. And his wife beckoned him to go. Leave his wife and his children behind here to the States. And it took a number of years before we were able to secure passage for his wife and his children to make their way to join him here. You meet Zeki and you just see... Where does this grace and this godliness come from? It came from that prison cell when he was being beaten and he was near the end when he was wanting to forsake it all and he hears his fellow believers in other cells singing praises to God and God floods his soul. This is persecution that's real. And, and now, of course, his church has called another African missionary, Malaku Solomon, from Ethiopia, and he is our evangelist among the refugees in Clarkston, Georgia, under the auspices of Redeemer Church. Extraordinary ministry. And a friend of our congregation who helped get that ministry started was Chris Cashin. And that same friend of our, com- of, of our congregation used his insight into law to help get Zeki's family from Eritrea to here. This is someone that's a part of us. He's part of our regional church who suffered much for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. I could even tell you the story of the deliverance of his family where they had to hide and, 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 and stay in another African country for months until they could get clearances to come into our country as refugees. There is suffering in this world that is acute. It's here. I remember another time I heard Cory Ten Boom. You all remember Cory Ten Boom, the hiding place? Even some of the younger ones may, may know of her. I heard her speak one time. It was profound. And she told the story. Do you all know the story of Cory Ten Boom and the hiding place? how her family hid Jews in, they were from the Netherlands under occupation by by the Nazis. They were discovered and they were put in concentration camps and her sister Betsy died before her eyes. 
her father died and she considered herself the rebellious and weak one and she's the one who survived to tell the story. It was profound to hear her give that testimony. She tells a story about she told her father they knew they were in danger by helping these Jews to escape. She said, Father, I don't know what, I, I don't think I could handle it if we got arrested. He said, Corey, when you're a little girl, when you're going to go on a trip on the train, when did I give you your ticket? You remember reading this in the book, some of you? Did I give it to you six months before? I don't remember exactly the wording. No. Did I give it to you three weeks before? No. You gave it right before I got on the train. He said, God will give you the grace just when you need it. These are stories, stories that we know, stories of real suffering for the sake of Christ Jesus. And, and let's face it, our own culture has become post-Christian. It's moved beyond post-Christian in terms of the broader culture to anti-Christian and the culture that we live today. You take your stand with the law of God today on a multitude of issues, you are immediately labeled a bigot. And our, but but our, our suffering here is nothing compared to what our brothers and sisters are going through in Afghanistan right now or in other countries around the world. We have missionaries that we can't even publicize where they are, lest there be danger to them. In order to read updates about our missionaries, you've got to go through a password to read it. We have missionaries. And I can't go any further than that because this is being recorded. Probably went too far then. Other churches do as well. There are places in this world where persecution is acute in terms of life and death. And, and we're moving in a direction of more intense persecution that comes upon the church of Jesus Christ. But here's something we need to remember about that enmity that exists. It is hatred on the side of the world towards the church. That world that hates us, we're called to love and to take the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ to that world. Jesus died for that world because that was you before you came to faith in Christ Jesus. Your heart was at enmity with God too. It's by grace that you've been saved, by grace through faith. It's by faith, by grace through faith that you're saved. It's not because of who you are. It's not because you are a better person in and of yourself. We're to love this sin-sick fallen world, even as God did when he sent his own son to die for this sin-sick fallen world. We need to be careful. We need to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. But this is a guarantee. You can take it to the bank. This is a gift of God. The Bible says those who seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus shall be persecuted. That's just as much a promise as John 3.16. We shouldn't be surprised. But here's something that we must remember about this. 
We are engaged in a battle. Paul calls it that. Look at what he look at how he ends this. He says, It's been granted you not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. In, engaged in the same conflict. You hear that word? That sa- the same conflict, the same battle that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Remember, he's writing to the Philippians. What happened to Paul shortly after the conversion of Lydia and her family? He and Silas are in jail because of the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ, because they healed a girl, they cast out a demon who had a spirit of divination. They ro- her, her owners rose up against them and threw them into jail. They have seen the conflict. They've seen the persecution. The Philippian jailer, who's a part of that church, was converted after that jailbreak that wasn't a jailbreak that we've heard about before. But they've seen the conflict in him, and they see it now. They've learned he's in prison in Rome. The Christian life is war. But we can't lose. Why can we not lose? Because Christ has already won. He's already won. But but what if what if we lose our whole culture? What if the Western world crumbles to this? It won't be the first time. Christ has still won in his death and in his resurrection. And we're talking about eternal consequences here now, not temporal ones. The point is, we are going to be persecuted. We are going to suffer. Because the world is a fallen world. And that world that is fallen, that brings persecution against us, is our mission field under the great commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even that proclamation of the gospel itself to them can bring the opposition. One thing interesting about the Corey Tim Boom account. She survived. She was released in order to write the book and to tell the story of the testimony of her father and her sister in particular. Many, many years later, when she had opportunity to tell that story before multitudes of people, she gave her testimony large group and a man came up to her and she immediately recognized his face. Some of you remember. He was one of the tormentors. He was there when her sister died. His face was burned into her memory. Can you imagine what she went through in that moment? And he came up to her and said, God has forgiven me. Would you forgive me? What did she do? She forgave him. This is her brother in Christ. The man that participated in the death of her sister. That's the power of the gospel that we preach. And even if opposition should come our way for preaching it, God is able to save even the palace guard and even those in Caesar's own household. It is more powerful still than the wickedness of the world. 
Walk in a way that is worthy of Christ. Walk together. And that path will lead to opposition, but also to victory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for what your word teaches us, even though it's hard truths for us to read. That unlike some many believe who believe that, that the purpose of the gospel is to bring prosperity and healing and no struggle or no opposition, that that's contrary to your word. but that our suffering is for the sake of Jesus Christ. Lord, use us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.